Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Amy Gunn, and I will be your host for today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the American College of Trial Lawyers podcast, Trial Tested. Today, I have the great privilege of spending some time with retired Supreme Court of Canada Justice Marie Deschamps. Justice Deschamps received her law degree from the University of Montreal in 1974 and received an LLM from McGill University in 1983. She became a member of the Quebec Bar in 1975 and practiced as a trial attorney in the areas of commercial, family, civil, and criminal law until her appointment to the Quebec Supreme Court in March of 1990. She spent two years as a trial judge before her appointment to the Quebec Court of Appeals in 1992 and received her appointment to the Canada Supreme Court in 2002. She remained on the Supreme Court of Canada until her retirement in 2012. She's been a member of the American College of Trial Lawyers since 2005, an adjunct professor in the law faculty of the University of Sherbrooke since 2006, and McGill University since 2012. She was invested as a companion of the Order of Canada for her numerous contributions as a jurist and for her dedication to youth development. In September of 2019, she was appointed to the National Security and Intelligence Review Agency by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. We are so honored to have as our guest today, retired Justice Marie Deschamps of the Canadian Supreme Court. Her accomplishments are vast and her humility even more so. She has contributed for the past four decades to the betterment of the Canadian legal system and to society as a whole, and we are honored to speak to her today. Hello, Justice Deschamps. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. And you? I am doing very well. We have a little bit of sunshine today, so that always lifts my spirits. May we start with, can you tell us why did you choose the law? I was not predisposed or there was nothing that would lead me to law, except the fact that I had a brother who had started law school and I was applying to university and I was applying to go to philosophy. And he said, oh, Marie, you will be bored. (laughs) So maybe you should also apply to other schools. And this is how I ended up applying to law school. I was accepted in all the topics that I had selected. But by then, I was convinced that he was right, that law was probably more my type than philosophy. In law school, was there a particular area that you saw yourself practicing in? Or was it not until after you graduated that you found what you really wanted to do? What I liked the most in law school is the fact that you were able to help people very early instead of make papers or to write papers, I requested the permission at the time to do internships. And I ended up doing internships in a few of the um, community centers and I loved it. And this is what kept me in. In law school, and I know you received your law degree in 1974, were there a lot of women in your class? Not many. We were 325 students in my year when I started, and we were about a third. But that represented a 
very big increase from just a few years before, because in the year of my brother, he finished in 1970, there were three. So wow. it was new for women to be in law school. In the early 70s, it was very difficult to have a job and I had no connection in any law firm. And the federal government had created a program for students and I applied for this program after having asked three of my good friends in university whether they would participate in and they agreed to. And it was this kind of internship. It was to give useful information to a group of people that was located in a very poor area of Montreal. And we would organize classes to tell them about rent and to tell them about housing and to tell them about how they could apply to have the money that they would receive from the government, the money so that they would be reinstated after they would be caught. And this is really where I found out that a lawyer could do a lot in the daily life of people, actual people, like change the way people look at like powerful people, those who could exert power over them. So this is what caught me. And were you able to take that experience that sounds like it was very impactful, being able to help people in their daily lives? Were you able to take that experience into your practice? It's funny because, as I mentioned, there was very little jobs at the time, early 70s. It was a difficult economic time. And uh, when I applied for a job, again, guided by my older brother, I had made a list of the places where I wanted to apply. And he said, oh, Marie, you should add a few larger firms because these days only larger firms would hire. I had a list of like, very small clinics, like a number of legal aid clinics. And indeed, it was a very good advice that he gave me because I received one offer and it was from a very, very large firm, a very international firm now. So when I got there, I felt a little bit out of place because what I wanted to do was to work with legal aid. So I didn't stay there long, but at that place, I made it known that I wanted to do family law because I thought that family law was the closest practice to what I thought would make a difference in the life of people. Unfortunately, there was more work in other kinds of practices than family law in this large firm. So I ended up looking elsewhere. I did my internship. I was hired, but after a year, I said, well, this is really not what I'm looking for. So I changed. I looked for other places, and then I went to a very, very small practice, two-lawyer practice. It was very diversified. I did criminal law. I did youth law. I did civil law. So it was very challenging. But eventually, there was an opening at the legal aid clinic, so I changed for legal aid. So in my first years of practice, I changed often. And then one day, one of my friends phoned me and said, Marie, we're looking for someone that has your profile. 
because in all those years, always the common denominator was the fact that I was doing litigation work and litigation work like very intense litigation work, uh, both in the very small firm and in legal aid. And in fact, even at the large firm initially, I was lucky enough to go to court very, very often and I received fabulous training. In any event, this friend phones me and I said, well, been there, done that. <laughs> don't, I don't want to go back in a large firm. And he said, oh, at least come and meet with us. So I went there and I thought that the interpersonal environment, like the people I met, were very interesting, very engaging, stimulating. So I ended up switching and I did 10 years with them. So all this to say that you have to remain open. So in practice, you've told us about where you'd been, large firm, smaller firm, legal aid, back to a large firm. What did you enjoy the most about practicing law, about doing trial work? Before I got to the last firm, what always kept me interested and engaged is the fact that it was litigation work. I wanted to go to court and I wanted to fight. I very much like the fight that you do in litigation work and you have to go back in time where the practice was very much different. It looked more like a fight than like what we see now, which is negotiation, conciliation, arbitration. Those were not practices that were very well known. So it was more like winning or losing and also sometimes taking chances. But this aspect of debating, this is what I loved and this is what kept me engaged. And that was consistent whether you were at a large firm or legal aid. It sounds like you always had that opportunity to engage in that. So with that knowledge, why go to the bench? Did you feel like you would lose some of that? Well, Things evolved when I was at this last firm and by the eighth or ninth year, I had a kid and managing the hours and the injunctions on weekends and things like that got a little more difficult. And my partner at the time said, well, why don't you get appointed? I, initially, I had never thought about it. I couldn't even look myself in the mirror without smiling. But then <laughs> I was convinced that that may be one way to put some order in your life and to have a little more control on your schedule. And I ended up putting in the application and uh, I got appointed. And that kept me in the court, although the other side of the court and being on the bench also present some challenges. So it's not a fight. It's more like trying to search for the best solution for the parties that respect both the rights, their strict legal rights, and their interests. So those were challenges also that I loved. Over the years, whether in practice or on the bench, I feel certain that you've watched attorneys either opposing you or as a jurist. What is your best advice for young attorneys as far as putting their best foot forward in court? What can you teach us about that? 
I'm sure you heard about this thing, preparation, preparation, and preparation. What? I'm so, not sure yeah. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the first, that's the golden rule. But besides this, once you know your file throughout, you have to organize yourself and to distill the most important issues. Keep time for the most important issues and try not to come up with more than three issues. And then if on those three, you have one very strong one and a second strong one, start with the strong one, finish with the second strong one and put in between the third one. Because you have to not only know your file, but you have to be strategic. So prepare and be strategic. And starting strong, that would be true whether it's an appellate argument or arguing a motion in front of a trial judge or in front of the jury. Is it start strong across the board? Correct. Yeah. You have to make a point. You have to strike people. Otherwise, you lose their attention immediately. I want to go back to your practice just for a moment. Is there something that you can recall that in hindsight that you would have handled differently or done differently? There is something that stayed on my mind for decades. And it's the fact that when I, I was at this last law firm, very early on, I was given a lot of responsibilities. There was a joke on me saying that I fit in so many boxes. I fit in the youth because I was still very young. I was in my early 30s when I got there. Yeah, no, I was not even 30 when I got there. So I would represent the young, I would represent the women, and we were three women in the firm. So it was not lonely in terms of women, but it was not many women. And then the third category that I would fit in was litigation because it was a firm that was known for the corporate work, but litigation department was more a service department than a autonomous money-making department. So I was the easy person to go to because I represented so many people and I was the person in charge of the recruitment, but recruitment meant also firing. And at the time, firing was not done in a very nice manner. You would tell someone that the person's work was terminated and you would walk the person out the door and taking the keys with almost no advance notice. And at the time I felt it was like the normal way to do that. And with hindsight, I tell myself, I should have questioned myself when I was following like the pre-established way, I should have questioned it, shouldn't have had to go through a more respectful technique method. Something that I would have done differently with hindsight, yes. And when was it that you felt like that was not the best way to go forward? And I guess what I'm asking is, it sounds like you were having trouble with that even at the time that it was happening. At the time it was happening, I realized that I was doing something which was very rude, but I don't think I have the maturity to stand up. So when you're handed responsibilities, you have to make sure that you stand up. 
even though you're not sure that this is your role, you have to stand up. So this is something that I would give advice on. When you're in a situation and you're a younger person in the practice, whether it's law or business or whatever profession you're in, just because things are being done the way they've always been done doesn't mean they're being done correctly or their most just way. Exactly. And so you have to ask yourself, and it sounds like the advice is just check in with yourself and make sure that this feels right for you and perhaps don't be shy or afraid to ask questions about it. And I know it's easier said than done because I certainly have been in situations, not the exact situations, but where you feel like if you say anything, it could hurt you. It could hurt your chances there if you're not following the rules or if you're questioning power. Yes, that's it. You may be seen as not handling situation the way they think it should be. At the time, people would be afraid that lawyers would do some damages in their file, would like take out memos that should remain there. But I think that there may be other ways to do that. When you feel that there may be something questionable, you have to ask yourself and consult maybe on the procedure, on the process that you're questioning, but make sure that you're comfortable with everything you're doing. You mentioned one of the reasons that you decided to apply for the bench was to have more control over your days and over your schedules. Did it live up to that expectation? (laughs) (laughs) I had this rosy picture of judges having their nights for themselves. I realized very early that no, no, it takes time. If you want to produce a good judgment, if you want to prepare for the cases, it takes a lot of time. But yet, in a way, I had more margin of maneuver in where I would be working. Now with teleworking, it seems like it's what I've been doing at the time. Although there was very limited access to computers, I would quote the name of the program that I was using at the time and no one would understand now what it was. (laughs) So yes, I had more flexibility in where I would work, but the time spent did not change so much, but I never regretted anything. I was for two years on the trial court and then it was appellate work and it was very, very challenging, very diversified. And so I loved it. You just told us you were two years on the trial bench before moving to the appellate bench. I assume there were good and bad things about each of those. Do you have a preference? Which one did you like better? Appellate court. And why? Trial court, there is a lot of loss of time. You wait for the witness, uh, more like hide and seek. You find out about the evidence that the other person didn't even think they had. It comes out through a third-party witness. So it's, uh, for me, I loved the job of deciding, making decision. So all this intensive work of putting everything together was not my favorite. When I arrived at the appellate court, you have the puzzle and you may reorganize the pieces but at least the pieces are all on the table. Understood. On the appellate bench, because you'd had so many years of litigation and having the opportunity to help people in your practice, did you also have that same feeling on the appellate bench, this desire that 
took you to law school and took you into practice, did you have the same satisfaction of helping people on the appellate bench? No. (laughs) (laughs) And how did you cope with that? I did the transition when I switched, when I went back to the larger firm, because I was a little bit disillusioned in legal aid, and I was able to switch to this larger firm where I had these fascinating files where my mind, my brains were more challenged. So in a way, I switched for me from then on. Law meant litigation, yes, but litigating about like new ideas, like developing the law and finding a way to a solution that is practical for my client. So in a way, I changed my focus when I switched to this other firm. And this is the same focus that kept me engaged in my career as a judge. It seems to me that your passion has always been betterment or evolution. Would that be true? In a way, yes. But I don't want to embellish too much when you're developing the law. You're trying to make it develop not only in the way it's consistent with the way rules are written in a specific statute, but in a way that will ensure that it's workable for the society at large. And this has become a more important issue in the Supreme Court. And in the Court of Appeal, as an appellate judge, you want to make sure that the way the rule is evolving in a specific case has to make sense in the next case. So you have a larger picture, but I think it would be an overstatement to say that in every case you think in the betterment of the society at large, you try to have the law develop in a consistent way in the area of the law that you're the topic of the case that you're deciding. And were there times on the Supreme Court that you found yourself in dissent? And I know um, I know the answer to that question because I've done a little bit of research, of course. And I'm wondering if you can share with us some important cases in your career where you were in the dissent and why they were important and why you felt very strongly about your dissent. There are two cases that come to my mind in dissent, and one is Malmo-Levine. So in the Malmo-Levine case, it's a case where the Supreme Court had to decide three cases at the same time, and they had to decide whether the Drug Act needed to be considered as unconstitutional. We call that the Pot case. It was a case where marijuana was involved. And I remember at the time writing for myself out of, I don't know whether it was seven or nine judges, but I thought that the law was acting like a hammer to kill an ant, a very small insect. And so I thought that the tool used, which is criminal law or penal statute, was too harsh a statute in order to correct a conduct that was not particularly evil. So that evolved a lot because now in Canada, marijuana is now legal. So that's an example where even though the majority decided that the law was constitutional in dissent, 
I think there were three descents in that case. I was one of those. And this is an example where the law has evolved. Can you give us just a little bit more background on the arguments in that case? I know you mentioned it was criminal law, but would you mind maybe just a little bit more background? We have a statute that prohibited possession and traffic of marijuana. And there were three different cases put forward by activists where they would have a challenge of the statute prohibiting use of marijuana. It went up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court, I think it was a 6-3 decision, found that the statute was constitutional. There were lots of pressure and even before that court challenge, there was a, a Senate report saying that the law should be changed. And eventually in 2015, our current prime minister made it a point to change the law and it's now changed. And at the time of that decision, you wrote a dissent. Yes. What was your dissent based on? My dissent was based on the fact that the tool that they were using was disproportionate by comparison with the problem that they wanted to cure. Understood. So it was on the basis of disproportionality. And as time, and not that much time, has gone by, what we've seen is there has been a shift in policy and in statutes relating to that, and it's now legal. Correct. Do you consider that a victory? I'm just part of the whole evolution. I don't take the credit for it. It's just like society has evolved and society is now ready for that. Because when politicians take on an issue, it's because they have some kind of social acceptability. So at the time, we were not there yet. And society has evolved and now it's acceptable. And do you believe that dissents such as the one that you wrote in the marijuana case help create that path, enlighten that path, so to speak? Yeah, it's part of it. Yes, yes. Just like the Senate report was part of it, the activist work is part of it, and the politicians' work after was part of it. So it's part of the process. Are there other dissents in your career on the Supreme Court that come to mind? There is another one that's very often mentioned, and I'm asked to give classes on it. It's a case almost 20 years ago where there was a challenge to a provision of our criminal code that allow parents to use physical correction, to use physical violence against children in order to change their behavior. And I always thought that violence is not the best way to change a kid's behavior. So I wrote a dissent on it and saying that, again, disproportionality, this is not proper way. The mean chosen by the legislature is not proportionate to the harm that is done to the children. There is no proven result. The main provision has been diluted significantly by the majority. The majority opinion is written, if I remember correctly, by former Chief Justice McLaughlin, and she had put some kind of boundaries on the circumstances in which parents could use violence against their children. 
However, what I wrote in the sense is that this is too complex a way to achieve, and it was not even a result that would have been satisfactory, even if parents were explained the complex path that the Chief Justice was using in order to dilute the scope of the provision. So eventually, there had been Senate committees on this provision, and I'm again asked to participate in some representation in order to change that provision. So it's not there yet, but I'm confident that we will get there. I believe the case that you're referencing is Canadian Foundation for Children, Youth and the Law versus Canada. And this was a 2004 Supreme Court decision where it involved Section 43 of the Criminal Code and has been, I think, referred to as the spanking law. Yes. And in that situation, the majority opinion upheld the constitutionality of Section 43 that allowed parents and also, I believe, school personnel to initiate corporal punishment of children. Correct. Your dissent was based, again, on this disproportionality idea and that it also violated the equal rights of the children under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Yeah. So since that opinion in 2004, it sounds like there's been much debate in Canadian politics and Canadian society about the efficacy, it sounds like, of this particular section. Yes, but it's not yet abolished. Do you still advocate in that field? I'm not active in this file, but I've been asked to present in classes, to speak about my dissent to students. I was asked to participate in a meeting on the actions that they wanted to take to push for the amendment of the criminal code. So I don't describe myself as an activist, but I can participate in some of the actions that people will put forward such as teaching. (laughs) Understood. I think that's a really wonderful privilege, perhaps, of your position where you were able to write an opinion as to why you think this shouldn't be the law in your country and to follow that along even after retirement from the bench and kind of watch it evolve and be asked as an expert in that field to continue to contribute. I think that's wonderful. Well, that's part of what we need to do even after we leave the court. We need to contribute to society. And part of it is to at least be able to explain the basis of our opinions. And that certainly is one of the things I'm interested in discussing with you, because as we know, you retired from the Supreme Court in 2012. So we're almost 10 years from that date. You were 15 years in private practice, and I believe it was 10 years on the lower courts, and then 10 years on the Supreme Court. Two years as a trial judge, 10 years at the Quebec Court of Appeal, and 10 years at the Supreme Court. It's 22 years. Yes, ma'am. So we are 10 years past your retirement. First, I want to ask you, what went into your decision to retire from the Supreme Court when you did? Because mandatory retirement isn't until age 75, and I believe you weren't quite 60. That is it. (laughs) I wanted to do other things. I knew that I did not want to return to the private practice 
because of a question of principle, I did not want to see clients being proud of having an opinion of someone from the Supreme Court. I think that this could lead to an unfair argument. And I've seen trial judges being very uncomfortable when former judges would appear before them. So I didn't want to go there from a principal point of view. So I decided to instead go to university. By then, I was already an adjunct at University of Sherbrooke, and I've been offered to be an adjunct at McGill University. So I decided to devote myself to student in the first year. So I participated in a lot of classes and conferences for them and also activities like Pro Bono Student Canada. I would participate in in training of young students. So in a way, it was both using my skills as a practitioner and my skills as someone who would want to make sure that society would evolve in a coherent way, but helping students. And then came like a few phone calls and emails, and I ended up developing a practice where I would do policy reviews. So I did the review of the Canadian Armed Forces on sexual assault and sexual harassment, and I did a review of peacekeepers in Central Africa being suspected of sexual assaults on young, vulnerable children. And then I chaired a research committee on medical aid in dying. In all these, I could build up on skills that I had honed while a judge, because as a judge, you have to decide on a very wide variety of cases. And then those mandates called from very different topics. So I think that this is what prepared me to do this, all these reviews afterwards. How did you enjoy the work on these reviews? Did you find it similar to the way you undertook review of your appellate cases? How was it different and did you enjoy it? The two first ones, the United Nations one and the Canadian Armed Force ones, looked very much not only as trial judges, but also as appellate judge work, because I had to do my own investigation. Mm. Of course, I was not alone, mostly in the United Nations one. We were a panel of three. I was chairing it, but we were three doing the investigation. And in the Canadian Forces, I was supported by a very, very experienced lawyer who had been my partner in the last firm I worked with before being a judge. So these two reviews called both on my experience as a trial and also as a litigator and also as an appellate judge, because then I would gather the evidence and then I would have to make sense of it and to make recommendations. So how does it work and where should it go? So in those two, yes. In the medical aid in dying case, it was a broader topic and the reflection was more made by the experts on the panels. There were 44 experts that were gathered as a group to make recommendations on medical aided dying. 
So yes, all these called for gathering information, making sense of it, and making suggestions as to where society should be going. Do you think that as perhaps with the marijuana policies, that this is just something our society needs to evolve to feel strongly about? And I guess what I'm trying to ask is, it's curious to me, and I'm speaking for the United States as well from my perspective, that the evolution of protections and advocacy for sexual assault victims has been incredibly slow. Awareness is picking up, but certainly not where it needs to be. And I juxtapose that with the evolution we've made on things like marijuana. And I guess I struggle with trying to understand the best way to push things like this forward. Do you have any advice on that? I remember speaking at the news conference in the United Nations case, and I said, well, and it was media asking a question. I said, well, the ball is in your hands. If you keep the topic as an important one, this is what will make things moving. So yes, society is evolving too slowly. Remember when I did my report on the Canadian Armed Forces, this was way before the Me Too case. And at the time, people were just like at least surprised. I was saying that the least severe cases is likely to create an atmosphere that is prone to open the door to most severe cases. People would tell me, well, this is not important, whether people are saying like silly jokes. Well, those were not silly jokes. Those were dirty jokes where women were the object of the dirty jokes. And this is all what creates the atmosphere. Now it's now accepted that you should not do those things. So society, yes, is evolving. And I think we should be thankful for that as much as we'd wish it to be a little bit quicker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. When you think about your legacy, and I know it's not... We're not at the end, so I don't want you to feel like I'm <laughs> making any pronouncements. But when you think about your legacy, what comes to mind? First of all, I'm not looking at my legacy. People will decide whether I leave anything behind. What I'm looking at even today is to only accept mandates where I think I can contribute, just like the two last ones that I did. I did the assessment of the damages owed to LGBT people after there was a settlement of a class action. What can I contribute? What can I do for these people? I'm now chairing a new agency that does the oversight of everything that touches national security intelligence in Canada. What can I do for them? What can I bring to the table? So I'm not thinking of what comes after me. I'm just on a day-to-day -day basis. What can I do? How can I keep things moving in the right direction? Justice Deschamps, you have been a member of the American College of Trial Lawyers since 2005. What has it meant to you to be a member of this organization and what have you enjoyed about it? So there are two ways I have enjoyed it. In the first part, I would say that I was more on the receiving end. That means that I would look at the documentation produced by the college. I attended a few of the gatherings, but that was about it. I was not a very active contributor. 
And then I was on the board of a NGO and they had decided to apply for a grant, the Gumpert Award. And then I started meeting some people in the organization and I got engaged in the pro bono side. And then I started to realize that, yes, there is something more that can be done. So this is it. So the first part, I would say I was more receiving the information. And in the second part, I would say I'm trying to contribute. And that ties in with an advice that I need to give to any lawyer, be them young, aspiring lawyers who would like to be part of the college or those who are already members, fellow of the college, is try to see in what way, in your own life, in your own schedule, with your own constraint, how you can contribute to others. The colleges offers many opportunities. There might be others, but be engaged in the community. So that's one thing that I would tell young lawyers and also not so young lawyers. To the lawyers who are retiring, we have more time on our hands. So it's even more important for us to contribute. But back to the, the young lawyers, and that ties in with my own course where I changed a job quite often in my career, I would tell them, well, don't stay in any place where you think you're not contributing anymore or where you are bored, where you're not learning anything, try to find something else. And when there is an opportunity that comes to you, then you have to take it. If there is a train that comes by you, you have to jump in the train. So this is what I would say. I would tell lawyers young and not so young. Well, I think that's wonderful advice that we can all take to heart. And again, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing that advice and all of your stories that you've shared with us today, Justice Deschamps. We really, really appreciate it and wish you the very best of luck. And maybe one of these days I'll see you at one of our conferences. Yes, yes, I wish so. <laughs> so thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested. Our next episode drops on Thursday, so please subscribe now and hear every inspiring episode.